But when you step off the cushion, and I'm thinking particularly when you go back into your everyday life to forget about Zen and live your life completely. And what I mean by that is your life itself is Zen. You don't have to do it in a Zen-like way. In fact, if you try and do it in a Zen-like way, you're just going to make more problems for yourself. So my advice would be to make a clear distinction between those two, and that's the quickest way to integrate them and realize that there's no difference between sitting quietly and your everyday busy life. In 1974, Daigaku Rumei returned to Japan with the intention of finding a monastery where he could train. But it was not as simple as he imagined. It wasn't until 1976 that he began training at Hoshinji Monastery. He was ordained by Harada Sekke Roshi in 1978 and lived and practiced at Hoshinji for another 25 years before returning to San Francisco to work on the staff of the Soto Zen Buddhist International Center. In 2010, Reverend Rume moved to Los Angeles where he worked as the director of the Association of Soto Zen Buddhists of North America and as the head priest of the Zenshuji Soto Mission. In 2015, he moved to St. Louis to guide the Confluence Zen Center where he serves as a guiding teacher. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. So Daigaku, I was I was watching a video where you were talking about a particular passage um, or a particular teaching from Dogen that it really, it just struck me in a way because in this and hopefully you remember this. I don't know if you will or not, but uh, what you were saying was that, you know, we all have this Buddha nature or, you know, we have access, we exist in this Dharma nature. But without practice and without verification, without going and sort of verifying for ourselves, we don't, we can't actually use it. And I just... I loved the way that you were sort of tw- turning that phrase like, you know, what is it that we, when we verify it, when we manifest it, like, how, how, what does that mean to use this Dharma nature? I'm not even sure if you remember 
this video. Or I not, think I do remember that one because there's not that many of them out there, I think. But that's such a well-known saying of Dogen Zenji's. Mm-hmm. And you know what? What really stands out for me in that that teaching and what really distinguishes the Zen school is that it's not about what we know or what we've studied. In other words, you've got to practice it. You've got to embody it. And it's not enough just to believe it. You know, most religions, and I think a lot of different Buddhist schools as well, faith or belief is so important, but that's where it ends. But in Zen, we have to go beyond belief. It's not enough just to believe in the teaching, because that means there's two things. Somebody believing in something. And the whole objective of Zen is is to awaken to the oneness of things. So that means that we have to go beyond belief. And so verification is to really realize that for yourself in this body now. That is, and and it's the realization that has always been that way. It's not. It's not that you're getting something from the practice. But it's always been that way. And so there was that that sort of turn of the phrase, like, so that you can use it. What does the verifying and the, how does that present it as something that you can use? It's just automatic, you know, it, it is just whatever you do. It's you, it's you completely. There's no, there's nobody doing it there's no that intention to do something has disappeared because there's no longer any separation otherwise unconsciously or consciously we're we're going to use what we've learned i think that's the human that's a human desire to try and Learn or study and think that we're that we think that we're we're lacking in some way, and so we're going to use that information and try and and, and patch up those places that we're we're lacking. But in that way, you know, as long as we're using it, there's no way that we can we can do it without the small self entering in there and using it for its own convenience. And so verification means it's completely gone. There's no more of that interference from the self that's learned something. And I don't know, just to play with this a little, if you're okay with it. Um, It almost, you know, how sometimes we, we talk about sort of the, the small I or the small self and the the true self, the big self, whatever you choose. Um, it almost feels like you're saying that there's this, uh, these little wisdoms that we try to, 
you know, as we go through our days, like we learn, I don't know, we go to the therapy to find the wisdoms that are going to help us deal with our parents or whatever we might think is lacking. Um, but then the verification gives us access to, uh, you know, a, a true wisdom that is, there isn't anything right. lacking. There, in fact, there's nothing. And there's, you're, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's nothing yeah, left right. that you have to rely on. Buddha, mm -hmm. Dharma, Sangha, Zen, the way, all those things will disappear. Because the, as long as those things exist, that means I exist. And that I is the small self you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. As long as the Buddha, the way, all of that exists. The Dharma. The Dharma. Mm -hmm. We're going to stand on something, but as I just said, Consciously, but more likely unconsciously, we'll use what we've learned to for our own convenience. And, and, it's, and that's something that we cannot get out of simply by thinking. And that's why we practice. Because that, that whole thing is beyond knowing and not knowing and this and that, the dualistic mind. And there's no way we can simply read about it and think about it and wish to be outside of that. Just that, that's how I take Dogen's, Dogen Zenji's message about practice. Listen, you've got to grind that stuff up. I mean, we need that information. We can't do that without that teaching. One of the things I always emphasize is we hear the teaching, we listen to the teaching. We're not going to be able to practice it without doing that. We, we hear the teaching, but then we have to think about it. And if we think about it, it's almost inevitable that the questions will arise, and that's where you, you want a teacher, someone that you're confident can give you the, the direction and the answers to, to work through those questions. But once you understand what practice is about, then number three, you put it into practice. And that means letting go of all that stuff you've, you've learned. It's funny, before we began the interview, you mentioned um, Josh Bartok. And, uh, and once when he and I were talking, he, he, he said this line that I've just, I loved. He was like, yeah, we all start the practice for the wrong reason. Mm. <laughs> Which is, you know, we're trying to get something or we're trying to learn something. And, you know, I think what I hear you're saying is, yeah, you do all this, you come to the teaching, you listen to the teaching, and then actually you realize even the teaching has to go. Yeah, but, you know, that's a process. And I'm not quite sure I, mm -hmm. I agree with, with Josh. Uh, we all have our, our reasons for coming to the practice. And a lot of times, you know, there's, there are questions that arise, and it's all a little bit different. Everybody's situation is a little bit different. But if you don't have that question or some question, mm -hmm. uh, I, I believe you're not really going to stick with it. 
Right. Because it, it'll just end up being an intellectual thing. And, and, and for a lot of people, that's what it, what it end, Zen ends with. They hear a little bit of it, and oh, yeah. Uh, and they don't really carry it through. And, and that's, of course, their business. Sure. You're right. I think that sometimes we, it gets to the question of, or it gets reduced to this is all one. And then, but that just still remains intellectual. Uh, I, I have, we have study groups at, at my center, and uh, mm-hmm. we were wrapping one up the other day, about a couple, two months ago, and one of the guys said, you know, it just seems impossible. And, and he was referring <laughs> to the whole Zen practice and awakening thing. You know, and, yeah. <laughs> and and I get that too. But I told him, listen, you know, the the teaching is we are already in that state. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the teaching. We're already within enlightenment. And and that's that's the thing. It's whether a person gets, you know, thinks it's impossible, or maybe sees that yes. Um, Yes, there is something that, that I can do, because it is up to us finally. In my, in my lineage, my teacher often said, we save ourselves by ourselves. We're not relying finally on, on some outside power to, to save us. Mm-hmm. And, and whether a person can really see, yeah, is that, is that a viable option for me? And I think a lot of people think, no, it's not. You know, it just seems too difficult or, or as he said, impossible. Uh, I don't agree with that. Yeah, so why do, why do you think he keeps coming? Well, lately he has not been. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of, I think. Yeah. I think he kind of, that when he verbalized that to himself, it was like, I don't know. I better do something else. And, you know, I think that's, that is fine. That's, that's really up to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we all have known discouragement. For oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sort of running with that a little bit. Like, how did you get through your discouragement? Or, you know, maybe there were multiple discouragements where you're just like, what am I? I mean, you lived, you lived this, some guy from Iowa in Japan for 27 years at Hoshinji Temple, which I bet had some trials. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, how how did you get through the discouragement? How did you stay sort of focused on the practice to be like, you know what, this still is the Path well, you know, Ian, I think I was really fortunate to find the teacher mm. I did. Mm. Haradasake. Um, yeah. You know, I, I didn't have to go around searching here and there, reading a lot of books. Um, I did practice at another temple before I ended up at Hoshinji. But, you know, 
I found a master. And it's true. Mm -hmm. It's true. There were a lot of hardships. And by the way, I was not the only Westerner there. Um, there were many mm -hmm. Westerners. And, and one of the reasons there were was because Harada Sake Roshi was hospitable to people showing up in various ways and, and giving it a try. He was, he was willing to let people give it a try, you know, to see if, if this was the way they wanted to go. And, uh, but, you know, it was difficult. It was, there was the physical difficulty, cold. We didn't have heat. We really didn't have heat very much, except hibachi, charcoal braziers in the winter. Very, very hot and humid in the summer. There's the problem of language diet but maybe the most difficult thing are the the differences in culture and the way of thinking mm -hmm. you know you, you pretty much have to accept the way they do it in japan and then i in my case i got tb when i was there and oh, wow. i was hospitalized for one whole year oh my god when i left the hospital I wasn't in a condition to go back into the monastery. So I had to go and live at another smaller temple for nine months. That was difficult. Um, so there's all kinds of difficulties. But the thing that when I think back on those difficulties, it was this encounter I had with my teacher that I just knew this man had something special and and he was offering it freely in, in what I'm, and what I mean by that is in terms of his teaching and his example and he was allowing us I mean even even that he let us live there is kind of remarkable you know can you imagine some foreigner living that long in America, um, it's not impossible, but, but, you know, we're talking about a small monastery in rural Japan. And there were, as I said, there were many of us at some times of Westerners. Um, just very remarkable. And it was finally him that, and even to this day, that is, is the inspiration for me. In combination, of course, with teachings from Dogen Zenji and the Buddha. And, and, and so on. So it's both. It's the teachings and the example of my teacher. Now, you had some time as a child in Japan, but you know, what was the question that, that brought you back to Japan in, in 1974 that just said, this is, I mean, you, at that point, you probably had no idea that you were going to do, <laughs> you know, almost 30 years there. But what was it that that brought well, you, you know, I was born in 1950s, so I grew up in the 60s. There was all of the unrest mm -hmm. of that time, mm -hmm. especially the Vietnam War. Um, mm -hmm. That the prospect of having to go to the war, which I did not want to do, uh, thinking, how is I going to get out of that? Um, and then all of the the civil rights issues that were there, the um, 
problems with the rich and the poor and all of those things that that the counterculture were trying to grapple with. But it was really the war in Vietnam that focused our fury. And that was true for myself as well. Uh, just trying to imagine an alternative to the mess we had gotten into. And uh, I had grown up in Japan. My father was a Christian missionary. Oh, interesting. And that was a big question in my life. Is that, was that really a viable thing for him to be doing? Uh, a lot of uh, father-son uh, tension there. And being attracted to, to elements of the Japanese culture as a young person, um, I had contact with Buddhism when I was in high school. In, in fact, the very first two monks I met were when I was a senior in high school. One was an American and one was Japanese. It wasn't like, oh, hey, I want to do that. But it was there were ideas or possibilities that later appeared to me. But I did have an interest in Zen from that first trip we made as a class I did in high school. We went to Kyoto, Nara, and just being attracted to something that seemed real, that was beyond conceptual teaching. And it took a while for that. That was like a seed, shall we say. And it took a while for that mm. to get planted in me and, and, and bloom. But that's kind of the short story. And the reason I went back to Japan, because I had thought as a hippie, part of the hippie generation, oh, I'll try and, we'll try and create our own society. We'll go, to, we'll go back to the land and, and try something there. It was pretty clear to me that that was going to be difficult in the States. I ended up going to Central America. I knew the land was cheaper there. Thankfully, I'd, I'm always grateful I didn't do that. But I went there. I saw it. Mm -hmm. And it was there that I read a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which has been so important for a lot of us. Oh, my gosh. And, and it, That's so interesting. You read it in, in yeah, Central America. And, and, you know, that was the first book that actually talked about sitting. Yeah. Until then, I'd been reading books by D.T. Suzuki. Very, very intellectual oh, right. books. He rarely mentions sitting, sitting zazen. But, but something mm -hmm. about Suzuki Shunryu's book. Yeah, okay, I can do this. And, and I can, not only can I do this, I think by virtue of doing that, I can realize something that will um, make, make me perhaps um, uh, a little bit of benefit to other people. So it was kind of with that idea mm. uh, that I went back to Japan thinking, yeah, I, I, I could try that. I could, let me, let me see if I can do that. Why do you think um, Christianity didn't stick? Just, and I only say that because, you know, your, your father clearly loved that faith so much that he was, you know, willing to go abroad. And I'm just wondering why you think for you, it just didn't, just didn't attract you in the same way that uh, Zen Buddhism did. 
Well, I saw Christianity as part of the problems in society, oh, for one thing. Okay. But also right. in my own family life. And I, I just felt my father couldn't really practice what he was preaching. He couldn't walk the talk. Mm. And, you know, 50 years later, 60 years later, I might have a different idea about that. And I was right. quite critical of my father. Uh, that that's just part of who I was at that time. Um, but uh, I, I did know enough about Buddhism to think, hmm, yeah, I think it's worth trying something else. Now, listen, I was attracted, however, to Thomas Merton. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he was a Christian. But Thomas Merton, as you probably know, was also attracted to Buddhism. All right. And he was on his way to meet D.T. Oh, he did meet D.T. Suzuki. He was on his way to Japan when he died. So obviously right. there was something for him as well that was really uh, something about the, the meditative part of, of the Zen practice that really was attractive to him as well. And one of the things I've always liked about Zen is it's a do-it-yourself thing. It's a practice. It's a practice that you do that's beyond simply um, reading about it or believing in it. It's something you do with your body. So I think that body part of it has been attractive. Mm-hmm. And, and, and conversely, maybe I felt there was, that was missing somehow in the Christian religion. Yeah, I think, um, you know, this is... <laughs> It's just one of my, I have all these theories, but um, I I do think there was a very disembodied America uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And when you look at America today, I mean, the, the explosion of yoga, the, you know, all of these different practices, there's almost been this immense reclaiming of the body. I agree. I agree. As, as a sacred. Oh, definitely. And of course, in Buddhism, body and mind are one. You can't separate them. But yeah, there was like Jules Pfeiffer, the cartoon. There's these cartoons of this guy with this big head. And he, he lives in his head, and he's completely unaware of his body. Mm-hmm. What, you, what you're referring to. And I think... You know the the introduction of Buddhism, as well as yoga and these other things, to the United States. Uh, although it had been introduced earlier, but sort of in this, I think of the sixties, seventies, eighties as this great explosion um, of when it really just started to spread. I guess um, you know the very practice of Buddhism. The way that it's come to the United States, right? Because there really are kind of, you've got devotional Buddhism, uh, which, you know, here in Boston, the biggest Buddhist community is uh, um, like, it's an immigrant Chinese community. It's, they don't do any sitting at all, really. Their monks don't do any sitting. It's it's a very devotional chanting. They do a lot of ritual chanting. chanting. Yeah, they do, they do chanting. That's true. And, but the part that 
you know, ends up being the sort of lion's roar, Buddha Dharma, uh, tricycle type of, you know, that, you know, market, if you will. And the one that you and I both exist in is this really embodied practice. Well, in a Zen monastery in Japan, the body work is so important. Hmm. I was. I often tell my group, you know, you know, people. Many, many Westerners came to visit while I was there, and it wasn't unusual for them to remark at a certain point, "Well, why aren't we sitting more zazen?" Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, they would come with the expe- expectation, maybe we're sitting five hours a day, or six hours a day, and here we were sitting one hour a day. Uh, why Why isn't there more Zazen? And right away, I or one of the older Westerners would be expected to tell them, well, listen, here in the monastery, all of the activities are considered to be Zazen. Yeah. They're just different forms of Zazen. And yeah, we do a lot of work here. Now, we did have six or seven week-long session every year. And at that time, there was relatively little work and lots of emphasis on sitting. But outside of session, relatively little, and all, you know, sweeping the gardens, uh, picking weeds, cooking, cutting wood, and and the whole business was considered to be Zazen in a different form. And there was just Mm -hmm. a lot of work, a lot of, a lot of, which is really good, it felt good. It felt good to work. Now, you ended up coming back to the United States um, in 2003 or, or something like that. Um, and you ended up working at the these Soto, North, North American Soto organizations. And what, what brought you back to the States? And yeah, what brought you back? You know, my teacher, Harada Roshi, had been appointed the director of the Soto Zen Buddhist Europe office, I think 2001. And originally he'd asked me to go as his interpreter. And <laughs> I got all my stuff ready. And at the last minute, it was like, nope, you're not going. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, you know, that had happened more than once in my life at the monastery. So it didn't, it was, oh, okay, <laughs> you know. And right. uh, they found another person who was more qualified, and, and, and finally that all made sense. So it's a question, you know, what am I going to You know, I was ready to leave, so I thought about it, and, and, and uh, no, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay at the monastery. And we, I talked to my master about that, Harad Roshi. Yeah, he said, yeah, it's better for you to stay. But then six months later, that same headquarters in Japan offered me that job in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. and. It was not necessarily an easy decision to make. I I talked to Harad Roshi about it. I don't think he was that keen on the idea, but he said, well, okay, try it. Give it a try for a year, uh, which I did. I considered more than once returning to Japan. Long story short, I didn't. Um. 
you know, you know, no. yeah, we all have our lives to live. I was just thinking the other day that I'd heard from a third party that my teacher was concerned about people like me who had been at the monastery so long, and, and what were they going to do? You know, right. hey, I mean, they're they're not going to live their lives out here. So that was a way for me to leave the monastery. I got a salary. I had a job. What made it fairly easy was that I, I lived at the San Francisco Zen Center. Oh, interesting. The city center. Yeah. Which was, um, I, I, I had a bicycle. I bought a bicycle. It was about a five, ten minute bicycle ride from there to where I work. Very, very convenient. And so it was like a little bit of a buffer. Right. You know, it wasn't like you just come back into American society and you've got to find yourself an apartment and buy a car and blah, blah, blah. It, it just gave me that that little bit of a buffer. Plus, I was interested to see what practice and life was like at San Francisco Center. That's the oldest of the, the big Soto Zen centers in America. So it worked out right. fairly easy for me that way. Was San Francisco Zen Center affiliated with the, aside from being Soto, did, was there any other connection there or just, just was also in the Soto just lineage? Just in the Soto lineage. And, and one of the things was, mm -hmm. the, it wasn't exactly the person I was replacing. Shohaku Okamura was getting ready to leave that office. He had been the director of that office, but he had been living at the San Francisco Zen Center. So it was like, okay, he's leaving. Is it okay if he comes in? And yes. <laughs> I I took the same room, oh, no which was kidding. a nice room, really. And yeah, because he'd, he'd been, been there for a while. It was a, it was a relatively big room. It had tatami mats on the floor. Um, it was all it, it all just worked out very smoothly that way for me. Right. But yeah, and it was quite fascinating um, to live there and see how. Americans were doing Soto's in practice. Is there, uh, without creating, you know, some sort of, this is how it is and that how, like, what was one of the things that you really noticed that it's was? It's funny because the other day, where was that? Oh, well, we just had our Rohat Seshin at my center. And mm -hmm. it ended up, because of the pandemic, there were only three of us at the center, right. and then a number of people on Zoom. And so right. because there were only three of us there, a couple of these people, the other people, were, were sitting, sometimes they were sitting in a chair and sometimes on, the on a cushion, on a zafu. And, and it worked out really well because there was very few people there, so they, they pretty much had the rule of the roost. But, I, but, but this image came to me when I was at San Francisco Zen Center. One of the things that shocked me was Coming into the zendo, and, and I have you ever been there? Yeah, a long. They time have a ago. big, big zendo in the bottom, in the, in the basement. Yes, and there's in what the they basement, call the gaitan, yeah. the outer hall as you come in, and and a number of people can mm -hmm. can sit on both sides. Actually, it's, that's just such a lovely mm -hmm. building. Anyway, but, it is great. Yeah, but it happened that I came in there. You know, mornings I was in here. Here I come as usual. And people, somebody was lying on their back <laughs> in the gaitan as if, I guess, they were doing zazen. But that would not be seen in uh -huh. Japan. 
Right. And and I get it. Not feeling well. <laughs> Have to be there a certain number of day, you know, sessions per week or whatever. They're doing their best, right. but hey, uh, that's quite different. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention chairs. I mean, even chairs in the Zendo. I think we had one or two on the, in the Gaitan in the monastery in Japan, but they were reserved for older Westerners. Japanese people, by and large, don't sit in chairs. Yeah, I, I I remember the first time I went to a retreat, I saw somebody that was not in the tradition of them, and, and um, they were sitting in like this gravity chair. It was almost like a lawn yeah, chair. Yeah. And I remember looking at it and being like, oh, wow, that's yeah. different. Well, lying on your back. I mean, yeah. hey, that's new if you're coming from Japan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And there has been, you know, in the Western expression of, of Zen, there has been that sort of loosening of that. Um, yeah. Of yeah. The form, um, which, you know, personally, I guess I actually, I appreciate because um, I'm not personally in it to do endurance. Like that's not my that's right. goal. That's necessary. We need, um, we do have to have some accommodation. Like mm-hmm. when it comes to sitting, you know, some people can't sit on a cushion. Right. Okay. Sit right. in a chair. That's, but I always encourage people to try sitting on the floor if they can. Right. So, yeah, we have to have some flexibility, no doubt. So just reflecting back on your experience in that temple when people would come and they'd see you and you're, you know, you're sitting one hour a day, but then you're doing all of this other, you know, you're living, you're making the place run. And and I think sometimes a lot of people live with this, this is my Zen time and this is my lifetime. I'm wondering if there's some advice that you can offer people in terms of how to just live the practice? Well, I think some advice I often give is to make a clear distinction between when you're sitting on the cushion, Mm. what we call zazen, Mm -hmm. and when you're not sitting on the cushion. And when, I, and when you're sitting on the cushion, you might sit 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, according to your convenience, as much as possible, really to bring your attention to your practice. And when I say practice, I'm talking about it could be the breath, it might be a koan, it might be just sitting. My teacher was fond of saying, just warming the cushion. Anyway, really bringing your attention to that activity. But when you step off the cushion, and I'm thinking particularly when you go back into your everyday life to forget about Zen and live your life completely. Because what I mean by that is your life itself is Zen. You don't have to do it in a Zen-like way. In fact, if you try and do it in a Zen-like way, you're just going to make more problems for yourself. So my advice would be to make a clear distinction between those two, and that's the quickest way to integrate them and realize that there's no difference between sitting quietly and your everyday busy life. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Daigaku Rume encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Confluence Zen Center at confluencezen.org. He also translated three books, two by his teacher, Harada Seke Roshi, and his teacher's teacher, Inoue Gien Roshi, and I will put links to those as well as a link to the Confluence Zen Center in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the Online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.